Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the baby from the cover of Nirvana's Nevermind is suing the record company and the Cobain estate for engaging in child pornography. You're the judge. What's your verdict? Um, damn. You know, uh, that... Did you know about this? <laughs> yeah. The, I remember the first time I saw that cover, right? And I thought to myself... That baby's not going to be happy when they're grown up. That like their little dick was just out there for the world to see. <laughs> now, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to call it child pornography. And the fucking guy like has taken over the years has taken so many pictures of himself in that same position, like banking off of his fame that way, that it's just slimy to call it child porn. To back up a second, like you said the baby <laughs> with his little dick. Like, do you mean little <laughs> just because he's a baby or even like taking into account that he's a baby. Oh. And like, how do you know the size um, of most babies' dicks? It's, it, you know, it is. <laughs> I don't know how much variability there is in baby dicks. Yeah. But I will say this, you know, I had a girl, so I have not seen a lot of baby dick. Um, but I do remember a good friend of mine um, has had two boys. And I saw both boys as babies and he was a good enough friend that I was there all the time while he was changing them. And one of them was just hung as a baby. This is very weird and disturbing. <laughs> he was already, he was a hung baby. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. the, the other one, like, and, uh, and so I, I think it was evident, uh, even, even back then. Wait, so if you, do you now know that as adults, that pattern has held that I, I think when they were teenagers, my friend told me that that pattern held like he was laughing about like how they when they had to take showers together, like it was evident. <laughs> it's this whole thing is very weird. And I wish I hadn't brought, <laughs> brought it up because you're telling me that you were like always over your friend's house looking at your looking at Not his always. two sons penises. And then also that like you verified when they were teenagers and the, his dick is, was way bigger than, you know, Bobby's <laughs> little Johnny's dick is. Yeah. Maybe I've, I have to admit I've just made all of this up. I was just 
sure. Like <laughs> by law, you like you have to say that your attorney just like texted you to say that. But no, I was referring to his small baby yeah. dick qua baby. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to that. <laughs> Getting back. To that. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's right. Yeah. I don't think there's any way to know whether that was a uh, a large or small baby dick. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but don't, but don't you think it's slimy for him to be suing now? Yeah, well, yes. And also the fact that like like if he should sue anybody it's his parents for like, yeah, that's subjecting right. him yeah. to sexual slavery. <laughs> and <laughs> and like he was alienated yeah. uh, actually. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about in just a m- impossible task that we've set for ourselves um Karl Marx, two two pieces of Karl uh, from Karl Marx, and also Engels, who just kind of never yeah. gets any credit, but it's not, it never gets it. Yeah, yeah, he's like it's like when people say Tamler Summers and his co-host David Pizarro. <laughs> uh, I, I feel for yeah, Engels. no, it is a really good analogy actually, because I think you play the role that <laughs> Engels plays for Marx. Um, no, but so we're going to talk about the Communist Manifesto and. Um, and then one of his early writings, Estranged Labor or Alienated Labor, um, both of which I think have a lot to offer. Yeah. But in the first segment, we're going to talk about something that I'm honestly kind of impressed that you are willing to talk about because <laughs> you have a personal connection to, the, to it. And that is this recent scandal in the social sciences where it, it turned out that there's fraudulent data in a 2012 study uh, about dishonesty, ironically, as every single person yeah. talking about it has pointed out the irony of that, um, <laughs> that there was fraudulent data and that one of the authors and the author most uh, connected to the data itself is a f- former guest of the podcast and friend of yours, um, Dan Ariely. So that's what we're going to, so we're going to, we had some people asking us if we we're going to talk about it. And yeah, like I said, I'm impressed that you're willing to talk about it. So, so I guess, I don't know how you want to frame the conversation. How do you? Yeah. Like, like <clears throat> I'll just start by summarizing sort of what happened. Um, so the blog Data Collado, which is run by three uh, social psychologists uh, who are also data sleuths, uh, great blog, I recommend it. Uh, they, along with some people who didn't want to be named, um, posted this uh, blog post uncovering what are pretty damning facts about the data in this study in 2012. Now, the study in 2012 was <clears throat> really influential. It was a study purporting to show that if you sign something first, like an honor statement first, and then you engage in some sort of behavior in which you could cheat, that you'd be less likely to cheat than if you sign something afterwards saying that you were being honest. So, so like the classic example is tax. Like you, you, at the end of when you get your taxes done, you have to say like, I promise that none of this, that I reported this accurately. And so the hypothesis was that if you first ask them, like I promise that I will report this accurately, that it would cut down on cheating. Mm-hmm. And so this paper had three studies, two lab studies, and one field study. And it's the field study that was revealed to be uh, fraudulent, that some of, at least some of the data being fraudulent. <clears throat> now, the field study was um, in collaboration with an insurance company that wasn't named in the original paper. And the finding was 
that when people had to report the number of miles they had driven after a certain amount of time, that because driving more miles leads to higher insurance rates, the finding was apparently that people who signed first some honesty statement Mm -hmm. would be more honest in reporting their mileage. And that would result in there being more miles driven in the sign first condition than in the sign after condition. Uh, Because presumably they're all likely to drive on average the same number of miles, the two groups. Exactly. Like random, yeah, randomly uh, between those two groups, um, that should happen. Now, um, it turns out that uh, in 2020, the authors of the original paper, including Dan Ariely, who is the one sort of most implicated in this, um, tried to replicate the original studies and failed and published a paper saying that they tried and failed. Mm-hmm. And they posted all of the original data from their 2012 study. And this is where the data was found to be fraudulent. Um, the, the way that it was found to be fraudulent was like in a really silly, silly way. If you take the difference between time, uh, sorry, miles driven at time one and miles driven at time two, which was supposed to show this difference, mm-hmm. um, there was an equal distribution of all miles. So people were reporting that they were equally, so people were equally as likely to have driven 5,000 miles as they were to have driven 10,000 miles, 20, 30, 40. Oh, okay. Which is just super duper implausible. Right. Like that just can't, and probably mathematically um, impossible. So that is just really implausible. Um, and it turns out that there was good reason to think that some of the values uh, of the time two miles were faked because when real people report how many miles they drive their or their odometer, they usually round numbers and none of the values in the time two were rounded. I drove yeah. 14,231 miles or something like that. That's right. Yeah. The, right. So the chances of it ending in zero or one, two, three, four, five, six, four, seven, eight, nine, were all equal. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the time one miles weren't like that. You had clear evidence of like normal people reporting miles. But in fact, the time one miles actually were split into, and this was the dumbest of all. If you looked at the time one miles in the Excel sheet, half of the time one miles were in one font and half of them were in another font. And when you looked at the values for one of the fonts only, you split the data, um, it has lots of rounded numbers, like what you would expect from normal people reporting odometers. And the second one has no rounded numbers. So basically what it looks like, it looks like what happened was pe- the, whoever uh, faked these data got some original values, added some random numbers, and like doubled those values, and then added some random numbers to get the differences. So like they, they just added, they just had a function where they said generate a random number and that will be the time two miles. Um, everybody, there's nobody who thinks that this isn't completely fake data. Like it, the, the post was clear in that. Um, even Dan Ariely, uh, says it's obvious that it's fake. Um, the problem for Dan, who again, yes, is, is a really good friend of mine, is that he was the only of the five authors, the only one who had the data. And he says that he got it from the insurance company directly. And 
created the Excel file from the data and then passed it on to his other authors. Of there, there's only a few possibilities about what could have happened. Wait, can, can I just be uh, just uh, clarify? So he got the data and then created an Excel. It wasn't already in an Excel file. He could. probably not because um, oftentimes when you share data, you share it in like a raw text format. Mm -hmm. So like .csv or .txt. Dan is the author of the Excel file. Okay. So if it was always Excel, then he faked it. Right. But if it was like a text file, then like if if I sent you uh, a file that had like the all of our download numbers, it would probably be in a TXT and you would import it into Excel. Because Why do you say that if they had sent him an Excel file, he definitely faked the data? No. So what I mean to say is the author of the Excel file has to be the the, the first person to have created it. Oh, okay. Got it. So okay, either he made up the data yeah. or he imported it. Okay. Um, uh, and so the possibilities are that he did it, that someone in his lab did it, um, somebody working with him, mm -hmm. um, like, you know, research assistants, or that somebody in the insurance company did it. Okay. <clears throat> he, he says that it was somebody in the insurance company and he, he believes it. The problem is it was long enough ago, like in 2008 or 2009, that they collected the data that nobody can find any records of the data. So the insurance company, none in his email, Dan wasn't using Duke, I think Duke email servers. Um, so it's just that the emails just aren't there. Nobody at the original insurance company has been able to track down. They say they haven't been able to track down data. Duke has an active investigation going. Um, and so people are sort of left wondering what went on. And yeah, it's like it's shitty because this is a super famous and influential study. And Dan's reputation is kind of at stake here. Right. Now, like I have reasons to believe that it wasn't Dan, but I don't know for sure because nobody can know for sure. Um, but here's here's, you know, another interesting wrinkle in it. The the three data colada people um are friends with Dan, which is kind of tough. And so Leif Nelson, who is one, the one that I'm friends with, who's part of uh, Data Colada, um, he, Dan, and I hung out like a lot during this summer thing that we, were, that we were at. So they were put in a position where they knew that they had to like call Dan out um, and, you know, and just let, let it be, like see, see what happens. But yeah, which I admire them for, to be honest. Yeah. I uh, I do too. Uh, so I guess I'm like my I I am not friends with Dan. I think I've met him. Yeah, once. you can say whatever you want. You can be. Like yeah. Uh, <laughs> if if you, I'll I'll just summarize sort of the sense that I get from what I've read about this. It looks really bad for him because when you go through those three possibilities, he's the only one that would have a motive to do this. I'm glad you brought that up because I think. One of the reasons that I did want to talk about it was because that has been, I think, the biggest sort of like comment that I've seen that would implicate Dan. Why would the insurance company um, fake data like that? And so they would have incentive to fake the data and it could come from a number of reasons. So it could be so Dan has gone around and collaborated with so many people. He was already super famous by the time he started collaborating with them. And, you know, it's not like it's the CEO of these companies who's collaborating with Dan. They put some researcher on, on the case. 
And it could have been, and, and in fact, there was a third com- a third party company that collected the survey data. At, at any of the stages of data collection before it got handed over to Dan, I think that people who were collaborating with him or who were in charge of collaborating with him might have felt like they needed to give Dan good, good, quote unquote, data. Um, I, like, yeah, f- yeah. why? Because so that they could continue their relationship with? Yeah. Yeah, like even though that, of, like nobody even, how does it help them? Like to be even be working with Dan, like do they get money for it? You know, I so I don't know. No, they didn't get they didn't get paid for it. But you know, imagine that you're like a a research intern at a place. So like you know Dan, you know that he's famous, and uh, you're excited to work with him, and he has this hypothesis, and uh, you you feel some pressure when you look at the numbers that didn't work out. You feel some pressure to actually like hand over something that would conform to what he was looking for. I think a more plausible explanation um, of, of like the, why the insurance company might do it is that, and this is what Dan thinks, although of course he's defending himself, which is that the survey company dropped the ball and actually didn't have the data ready. And when, they, when it came time to hand it over to either the insurance company or Dan, somebody just made up a bunch of values. And here's the thing. It, it does look bad for Dan. It's just that I, it's such a dumb way of faking data that it's hard to see Dan Ariely doing this. Like, that's one. Yeah. Two, Dan, I've, I've collaborated with Dan um, and I've seen him work a lot. He doesn't touch the data. He doesn't do data analysis. Like he's, he's been, you know, like I haven't seen him ever open a spreadsheet even really. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing that he would care enough about to get that involved in. But you say that he created the Excel file. Well, so the Excel file came from, uh, yeah, a computer that had Dan's, Dan's Excel credentials, but it could have, like I said, it could have been faked when he got it. Right. He, it could have been faked when he received it. And so he opened it in Excel. And just uh, just used his Excel document to create Yeah, right. right. Or his and Excel. That's, that's, the, that's actually the Excel document that the co-authors had. Right. Um, you know, so the thing is, I don't want to like mount like some great defense of Dan. It just doesn't mesh well with what I know of Dan. Like Dan uh, says he, he engaged in the attempt to replicate. He was eager to correct the record when it wasn't replicated. He was eager to to uh, post the the data in the open science framework. Um, he I know him to care about outcomes. The, the 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 thing is, he's sloppy, so he likes to talk about research findings in a way that super simplifies the complexities of research, and he likes telling stories. And that's not doing him any favors right now because. Right. He will talk about findings before they're published. He'll talk about findings that he's then gotten wrong, like, you right. know, because he heard something that sounded good and he wanted to repeat it. And he's been sloppy at the data process, although a lot of us have been. Like, and anything I, from 2008 would be terrible if you looked at my data. So, you know, he might make a fool out of me if the Duke, if like the Duke investigation actually finds out that it was him. It just seems very odd that it would be him. Um, just like he would have done it better if he was going to do it. Yeah, if he was, and, and he just doesn't care that, you know, like he doesn't, he's had gajillion failed studies. Like there's, there was no professional pressure on him to have this finding work. Um, it, by that time, you know, he'd already published his book as New York Times bestseller. 
Um, but like, I do worry about the, that this was fraudulent anyway. And people, people are quick to condemn all of social science when they see this kind of shit. And it's not hard to see why, not why they're doing that. You know, I did read that there is like some, that there was some disagreement among the, uh, the authors about how they should respond to the failed rep replication and that some of them were a little mad at Dan Ariely for trying yeah. to like push to not have it be retracted or not have. So it's not like he was so eager to just get everything out there, or at least that's not how the, the co-authors um, well, describe so the situation. <laughs> there's another, that's another, there's another sort of, so if you run, uh, like there, there are studies that I run that I actually don't think would replicate. Right. I just haven't bothered to try to replicate them, but I would welcome people trying. And if they fail, I'd be fine with it. Um, but if I ran a replication attempt and it failed and I published like, hey, I don't believe in these findings anymore. Whether or not I should try to retract that original paper is still an open question because some people, me included, don't think that that's what should be a retraction. Like just because it's not replicated does. After all, you have essentially two papers one says yes one says no i kind of want them out there in the scientific record both both of them um i would only retract a paper if it turned out data were fraudulent or there was some egregious error in the way that i had analyzed it that made it wrong but his you know the co-authors threw him under the bus a little bit by saying like they, pr they pretty clearly were like pointing the finger at dan and i i worry that part of it was to like you know keep themselves clean by like shitting on him publicly um but wow but, oh okay <laughs> yeah i don't i feel like i, I need too... to call my lawyers right now just to like <laughs> <laughs> i know you know i know they were two research teams dan and nina uh mazur who who i know well as well who is a postdoc of dan's and then the other three um but all four, to be fair, all four of them immediately distanced themselves. And Dan immediately said, there's no way that the other four could have had anything to do with it, um, which I thought was a, a good thing for him to do. But, you know, like one possibility is we never find out who did it. And then it's like, well, what happens to Dan at that point? Right. Like, you know, he, he would have to sort of claw. Like w one good sign is that, of course, as soon as this happens, people are going to be going through every study that they can. Right. Um, and if somebody if somebody engaged in that level of data manipulation, I would say they're probably doing it a lot. Like that's that's the kind of thing that you do in a hurry and you do right. it lazily and you do it all the time. I wonder though, like because uh, I mean you mentioned that when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and I mean it's sort of like saying if somebody who who cheats on his wife once or twice, <laughs> like probably cheats on his wife all the time. And I don't know that that's true. You know, like, like I think there's definitely people who just have a pattern of, um, you know, that that's how they are. And then there are people who never do it. But I think there's also in between that, like there's people who just, you know, golden opportunity, uh, like, Oh, look, I could like this, everything is going well with the study, but if, if, but these data don't help it. So, but what if I just yeah. changed it and then that's it and then never do it again. Cause you realize, Oh, that was stupid. It's not worth it. And then maybe even forget about it. Right. Like, yeah. you know, like oh, forget even that you did it. 
Right? One plausible possibility is that he actually just like because he's actually forgotten about you know probably half of the stuff he's worked on. One possibility is that if he if he did commit fraud, he actually forgot about it. Right, um, <laughs> which is one of the most that would, <laughs> that would be so weird, so fucked up um, to like like you know if he went down for it and he forgot about it. Like, it's it's like it's, it was like you know like fucking someone on Ambien. Yeah. Um, no, I get I, I, I get what you're saying. I think my intuition comes from the fact that like that level of sloppiness seems to be the kind that you know it's like you just start getting a little lazy with your text messages when you're cheating yeah you know you've gotten away with it so much that you just like <laughs> it seems like there might be a treasure trove of right uh, illicit cheaty messages before <laughs> um <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, and so so like right so the the fact that nobody's found it in his other you know any other examples of fraud plus the fact that it was so sloppy and obvious leads you to believe yeah. that um you know yeah i'm inclined yeah. to but you know of course like like you said he's my good friend i'm, I'm like gonna right. be finding reasons for his his innocence but but dan is pretty dispassionate about stuff i feel like if he committed fraud and it turns out that you know that like we all knew he committed fraud uh he would he would be okay with me having said that he committed fraud in fact i'm pretty sure he's okay with with the authors who who published this original article uh, i mean the the blog post yeah i don't know it's been tough like i don't i yeah i imagine for him right now like he's you know but do you have a lot of people like talking to you about it like is it yeah a lot of people were hitting me up about it and wanting to know like what i thought about it which you know is fair that's like my yeah. impulse too that would be my impulse too um but you know what actually has been way worse for him is that he got on the radar of these people who believe that there's a global conspiracy where Bill Gates and, and like the, the vaccine and the microchips and like the new world order and all that shit and like yeah. the Jewy conspiracy people, he got on the radar of theirs for saying something like having talked to Bill Gates or something. I don't remember what it was. Bathing in foreskins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, but you know, he's part of that group that goes out to the forest like once a year. Yeah. Um, he's been getting act like death threats from people. Um, for like a month or two now, uh, like every day. So it's like QAnon people, like, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 He's been just sort of like labeled as one of the, basically, I think he said something, I don't know, they think that he's one of the people who wants to engage in population control, right? Like, just like let a bunch of people die. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. So fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, Whatever it turns out to be, um, I just want to know. Yeah. Like the worst thing will be to not know. Um, I just want to know what happened and and like get the correction on record. The but, email thing, but, I guess, is the last weird thing. But I but I don't know to what extent. Like you know, if it's really from two thousand seven, two thousand eight, like oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like the yeah, fact yeah. that there's no record of it is very strange. Um, it is very you would both think the insurance company has yeah. records yeah which is all it's almost like more understandable if nobody has records than if dan said he had no records and the insurance company was able to immediately produce them mm -hmm. yeah you know when mark hauser got caught for fraud they they couldn't find the original emails from back back when he was doing that stuff like typing in thick, thick numbers um but but one of his more diligent students whose name shall not be mentioned uh, kept detailed paper <laughs> records uh, the moment she had suspicion um, of it. And, you know, who knows who that is, but 
Did you know that Lori Santos has a very successful podcast? <laughs> I have heard that she is now pretty much uh, the Davos queen. Yeah, she's a Davos queen. <laughs> she's in charge of the means of production right now. She moved from proletariat to like upper like ruling class very quickly. Yeah, there is this point where, you know, I guess there is um, a similarity here. Laurie is now such a superstar at Yale that, that I think you just start dealing directly with like the provost and the president. Yeah. Like your, your department doesn't even have anything to do with what you do. Like, I think, I think she's at that level. Right. right? No, she's going to the meetings. She's going to like <laughs> Mr. Burns's mansion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, abs- Mr. Hundred- Mr. Burns did go to Yale. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, we're so glad to have served as the stepping stone. I don't know what role we would play in uh, the Marxist, the Marx system, but uh, it's a good <laughs> one. For, we're so happy to be the petty bourgeois. <laughs> we're the petty bourgeois, exactly. <laughs> um, you, you know why somebody would want to fake data, actually, is that? the pressures of the market, the pressures of... That's right. <laughs> That would provide a motivation for anybody. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, The inexorable force of oppressive force of capitalism when we get back. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored by NordVPN. You know, I like to go through our download statistics every once in a while. And I see that a lot of you are listening from other parts of the world. I mentioned this story a little bit uh, ago about my daughter traveling for the summer and realizing that with NordVPN, I could give her my login. She could use it on her device and watch streaming services from the U.S. no matter where she was. She was like actually delighted about this and uh, used it all summer long. NordVPN can do the same for you. You might want to watch something uh, that's not available in your country. Maybe Netflix has something in one country, but not another country, or you want to watch BBC's iPlayer, but you're not in the UK. This is where NordVPN comes in. There's one thing that uh, I've said before, and I think it bears repeating that VPNs have a reputation for slowing down network traffic. But I think that was an old reputation, or at least my experience with NordVPN is that it doesn't at all. So NordVPN you can't even tell that it's running in the background. And because it doesn't interrupt any of my traffic and I don't even notice it, I can have it running in the background and get another advantage of having a VPN, which is increased security. With NordVPN, my internet traffic is routed through a secure encrypted tunnel and it protects, protects my data and my privacy from snooping eyes. You can have NordVPN on up to six devices. So I have it on my home desktop computer that I'm recording on now, on my iPhone, on a couple of iPads. Um, You can even put it on your router so that all of your devices are protected. If you think you would get some benefit from a VPN, I would ask that you check out NordVPN. Go to nordvpn.com slash VBW or just use code VBW uh, at checkout to get 73% off of your two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. 
This is a limited time offer, so you should probably act quickly. Again, that's nordvpn.com slash vbw for 73% off your two-year plan and four bonus months for free. Our thanks to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. It is everything in Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time that we like to take a moment every episode and thank all of our listeners who get in touch with us, who get involved in the Very Bad Wizards community. To, um, and there is a, a community, one of the things I think we're most proud of yeah. about the podcast. And um, and yeah, often lively discussion, um, both in emails to us and on our, the Reddit page and sometimes even on instagram although you think that is just you know the most i'll never live that form. down <laughs> all the instagram like bottoms <laughs> alienated uh alienated social media oh, yeah. Um, but uh yeah so you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com follow us on twitter at peas at tamler and at verybadwizards can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook, and, but do not try to reach us on Facebook. You, you can uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Um, we love to see those ratings, and they help us. Uh, they help other people find the podcast, which we're always we're always looking to expand we need to grow and grow to the far reaches of the world i mean to new lands and climbs <laughs> yeah to new <laughs> lands and climbs we have to outcompete <laughs> our fellow podcasters and um, so yeah and and finally subscribe to us on spotify speaking of capitalism and um, how that could end up working right. for us i like how people were you know Joe Rogan's recent controversies, people were like, yeah, oh, Joe Rogan's getting canceled now. <laughs> we're like, yeah. yeah, tell that to like multi-million dollar deal at Spotify. <laughs> like he's right. been silenced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it's like 10 million listeners. Yeah. On that. <laughs> I know, the like word- we will be, uh, we will give reasonable vax Scene, like right. discussion here no ivermectin <laughs> no uh speaking of of that we should we should give a shout out to two podcast appearances that we've made uh, yes. recently so it, what reminded me is i was on the decoding the gurus podcast uh with two lovely chaps where we talked largely about the weinsteins weinsteins apparently um and really and the whole yeah i, I think they all this time they, <laughs> i think they're trying to evoke Einstein, but some people have already gotten mad at me uh, for for that appearance, so I'm not going to say. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
but most mostly good response. Yes, and I was on um, a podcast that I love called Weird Studies, and we talked about Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me, the David Lynch movie, and you know how that connects to the Twin Peaks um, story more broadly. And I'm very happy with how that turned out. I have so much respect for those guys and the opportunity to talk with them about something that I care about so much and something that they were able to offer so much insight to was, it was great. Like this is what podcasting, unalienated podcasting is all about. (laughs) But if you'd like to support us in some more tangible ways, you can go to our support page. You can go to very busy verybadwizards.com click on support and there there you'll see the various ways in which you can support us you can donate to us we very much appreciate that via one-time donation on paypal or you can join our our throngs our our wonderful uh, group of patreon supporters whom we appreciate greatly if you do you can join at various levels at one dollar per episode you get our ad-free episodes you don't hear us slanging give well charities like, like we do for everybody else. Uh, and you also get access to five volumes of my beat collections, uh, which I've put out over the years. If you go $2 and up, you get our bonus segments, uh, which we most recently did. For instance, uh, one on our top five comfort movies. Comfort movies? Yeah. yeah, movies that are rewatchable, that we enjoy, that we snuggle into on a rainy day. Um so you get all of our bonus segments. In fact, you can. there's a list of all the bonus segments that we've done, so you can check it out uh, if you're interested. Um, you also get everything else, like the beats. If you go $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic for us. And we do that a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. You also get my intro psych lecture videos that I recorded for my class last year that I'm releasing once a month. And you get access to our Brothers Karamazov series, which we're still very proud of. Um, And our wonderful new tier, $10 and up supporters, if you join at that level, you will get everything that I just said and access to our Ask Us Anything video series, which we're putting out once a month and which we just did the inaugural version of. Finally, you can support us if you want to... uh, get something for you or for a friend who loves us, you can go to our merchandise tabs. If you go to our website, you'll see one for t-shirts. You can get hoodies, t-shirts at Cotton Bureau, and you can also get some Very Bad Wizards mugs, you know, drink some bourbon out of it like we do. So thank you to everybody for all the ways in which you support us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. All right, let's get to our main topic for today, the spirited views of Karl Marx. Um, And we are looking at two of his works today, The Communist Manifesto, which was published in 1848, which he wrote with Friedrich Engels. It's kind of the Art Garfunkel of the Marx-Engels. Yeah, it sounds like it. But but it sounds like Engels didn't even actually write it. Like, uh, I think but, he did a lot for the manifesto. He didn't uh, for Estranged Labor, which is the second. I think he's more like the promoter of the ideas. But I think he he was pretty influential in spreading and championing, championing them and also clarifying some of Marx's ideas, which sometimes needed clarification. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, 
I know you're you're about to l- launch into the the intro, but I I found the manifesto much easier to read than the Strange Labor, and I was wondering if that was because of Engels. I bet it was. Um, it was yeah. his influence because um, he kept at it. You know, like even though the English translation came like. 25 years later, uh, 30 years oh. later, I think all the different translations, which he was spearheading, I think, just getting all that done. Um, right. Yeah, the second piece is called A Strange Labor, and this comes from, kind of, I think, unpublished economic manuscripts of, uh, of 1844, because it's kind of an excerpt um, that we have. Um, and this is where Marx develops his theory of alienated labor under capitalism. He wrote both of these before he turned 30, which is Shit, <laughs> you know, pretty uh, unbelievable um, and makes me feel very bad about the first 30 years of my life. Yeah. Now, here, whatever you might think of communism as you understand it or as it may have manifested itself, um, the few times some version of it was tried, I think it's undeniable. He, he was definitely onto something in these two pieces and I think in his body of work in general about the kind of the inherent ills, the problems of capitalist structures, the contradictions. I taught these two pieces a couple of times in my political philosophy course recently, and I was pretty struck by how prophetic Marx can be about certain elements of capitalism, like globalization and the consolidation of wealth and power into the hands of fewer and fewer um, people. And also, and this is part that I love, just how his analysis exposes the ideological or philosophical underpinnings of a free market system. He, Marx pulls back the curtain, Dave, on philosophy. <laughs> he, he shows the gap between the pretensions and what it's often actually doing or serving as. And I tend to like that kind of thing, as, as you might know. Yeah. Like, you know, in that way, I think he's kind of like Kuhn, Thomas Kuhn, you know, in, uh, but doing for just the history of you know, human civilization yeah, <laughs> instead of just right. science. So we're super wide in scope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So I'll just give a cup, uh, a brief summary of these pieces to get us started. And maybe I'll start with a strange labor and then we'll see how it goes. Like I said, feel free to interrupt me. It's been a, a struggle trying to figure out how to present this in any kind of <laughs> concise way. Oh. Um, but so a strange labor, which I think you're right, is, is a little bit m- more obscure in terms of how he uh, how it how it's written, but I think like with a lot a lot of Marx when he's being obscure, there's some insights there, and so this is where Marx says that capitalism necessarily leads to an alienated workforce, at least for a large percentage of the population. Um, according to Marx, human beings like uh, we have a kind of essential nature as creative and productive animals. We make stuff, we transform the world around us with these creative, productive powers. That's kind of what separates us from other animals. But the way capitalism works with its increasingly specialized forms of labor, so think of somebody working in an Amazon shipping facility or workers making parts for automobiles or iPhones. Uh, First of all, they're making a product that doesn't belong to them, that they don't have any control over how it's used. it, It owns them them more than they they have no it's not theirs they don't understand how it works because they don't need to that's one of the benefits of specialized labor 
And it's just boring, monotonous shit work that doesn't reflect their creative powers in any way. They're only doing it so that they don't starve, so, so that they can feed themselves or their families. And so this is the alien, this is what Marx says, alienates uh, workers from their products and also from the activity, the human activity of labor. The workers don't see themselves or their identities reflected in the products or the activity of labor, right? Labor for, for them is not a means of self-expression in any way. And so they have this division of their life where they can only develop themselves as human beings in their leisure time or free time. This is a thing that he thinks is very new, this distinction between free time or leisure and work that you just didn't have in earlier economic systems where this idea that, okay, this is my workspace where I just have to do the stuff I need to do to live. And then there's this little time and often it's, it's very little free time. Uh, however much they're lucky to have, that's where I develop myself as a human being. So, you know, I think we are lucky enough to actually have one of the most unalienating forms of labor that it's possible to have in a capitalist system. But I think Marx is definitely onto something and not just for people who work in factories, although that's what he focused on. You know, the, the people who work in factories where they're just kind of parts of, they're like a, an appendage of a machine when they're there. And I, I couldn't help but think of um, Metropolis by Fritz Lang. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the imagery of, of the workers just feeding, feeding the machine and then eventually being fed to the machine. <laughs> and, um, and of course, it, Modern Times, uh, the Charlie Chaplin movie right. where, I mean, he's very in influenced by these ideas and he's just somebody who, who uh, takes a wrench, that's his whole job on a factory line, um, uh, to take a wrench and twist it one way and he ends up getting sucked up into the machine and Marx has this idea that this is how this is how the bourgeois capitalists see labor and the products themselves have a kind of power over like it's it's not only that the product doesn't belong to them that they make um, it's that it's actually something that's hostile it has power over them and if they don't uh, do their part they can be fired and they can uh, starve and the better they do, yeah. that just makes somebody else rich. It doesn't make them rich. The description of the worker as a commodity is like what really nailed it for me. Like that the worker has become a commodity. That is, it's just a replaceable piece of, of the manufacturing machine. And if you see the worker kind of, I don't know, I don't, I don't fully understand to what extent Marx thinks the worker is aware of it, but however much the worker is aware of it or not, they are still alienated. Like, I think Marx, you see this in the manifesto too, like under feudalism where say somebody would make shoes or somebody would make a clock or something like that. And that would be their job. They're, they're, you know, they're a lower class. They're just a craft person, but they, they can see themselves uh, reflected to some degree in their work. You know, like this is, I'm the shoemaker, I make this kind of shoe and I see it through and I'm proud of it and people come and they, and yes, I have to kick uh, a huge amount of my, what, what I get for it to the various, you know, 
lords and guild masters or whatever. But this, but that at least is not alienating. There is some kind of pride you can take in your work. You're not just a cog in the machine. You're making the product. The product wouldn't exist without you. And na- and and that's what capitalism has just completely take, done away you with. Take, right. You take pride in it. You you do it from beginning to end, or at least oversee the production from beginning to end. And the product is yours, and you have some of you in the product. Yes. And it's a it's a yeah, exactly powered thing. Right. And that has been stripped away from us pitilessly by by that <laughs> capitalism. Again, uh, like I feel in some ways it's unseemly almost for us to talk about this because. That's just not how it is. Um, well, that yeah, that's exact. That's one of the things that I want to talk about. Um, you know, like in this grand division of bourgeois and proletariat, um, what, what, what class are are the very? You know, it seems there's a sort of a complex stratification of of kinds of labor, and uh, yeah, we have unions. You know, barely these days <laughs> i mean you saw what happened in alabama when uh workers tried to unionize in uh amazon factory there was a, just a uh a massive arguably yeah. propagandistic i don't know uh right no i was referring to us as faculty oh i'm uh, not there are, you, there you are might faculty. have the unions no i mean we're not like, recognized <laughs> <laughs> there is a there is a national union of faculty uh but I, apparently, I'm in apparently but i don't think it's recognized by anybody um so, okay, th- there's a couple other aspects of this alienation. Certainly workers see themselves exploited by their, you know, the factory managers, their corporate bosses. And so they see themselves and their interests as very separate from the interests of the bosses. Uh, they also see themselves in competition with other laborers. And so they find themselves alienated from other human beings too. So, this is so Marx has this idea that under capitalism we become consumed by self-interest. Like that's it, just naturally get, uh, leads to an atomistic or socially isolating form of life, a kind of every man for himself ethic that alienates us from our fellow human beings. And we almost, you know, if you look at sort of the guiding philosophies behind the enlightenment and um, the capitalist ideals, they, they start out with human beings as these self-interested atoms. Even theories of justice view us that way, sometimes behind a veil of ignorance, sometimes in a state of nature. And we almost think of this as some essential feature of being human. But Marx says, no, that's just a product of being in a capitalist system. That's the kind of ideology that will develop in that system because we have been alienated in this way from our fellow human beings. The last thing is, and this is a little more confusing to me, but this idea of being alienated from our species being or like species essence. Um, and I don't know how much of this I got from estranged labor or how much of I get from just maybe secondary material on this stuff. But I think the basic idea as I understand it is that the underlying ethic of capitalism creates in us this slew of desires and needs that all ultimately boil down to money, like to transactions. Um, we, so we become, and, and this is something I think we can all relate to, we become these constantly consuming machines 
because that's how capitalism needs us to be for the economies to grow. So, and then the more we consume, the more money we need, which leads us to work more and more in this kind of alienating way. And so that even in our free time, we become alienated from the more kind of spiritual, essential, and, you know, creative selves that Marx thinks is part of a kind of human essence that we're being torn, that's being sort of separated within us um, by capitalism. And I like, like, like it probably sounds, this part is a little murky for me, but I, but I, I also think like, again, he's onto something. I mean, if you think about how our phones have just, they have transformed us, like turned us into different kinds of people. And, and a lot of these technologies that are the result of, you know, capitalism spreading wherever it can spread, they have this kind of dehumanizing quality to them. And that's really hard to escape. You can try to resist it, but it will find you. And, um, and for most people, it will ultimately take you over, like in ways that you, to the extent that we can even make sense of this idea that there is some real me, um, you know, it, that's being perverted or at least separated by this kind, these kinds of technologies that are just constantly um, arising and creating more and more just consumer needs. Yeah, no, I, I think there used to be less alienation in jobs that weren't so, so many of Marx's examples are from, obviously from like factory jobs in the industrial revolution, yeah. which were just terrible, terrible conditions. But the alienation has spread because I don't think that it used to be the case that people with, I don't know, jobs in the service industry or something like working for somebody else, it, at least maybe it was my naivete, but it, it, it seems like people are more and more alienated, feeling alienated in those jobs in like an ever increasing large, larger chunk of the jobs, larger percentage of the jobs. And because they're getting nickel and dimed partly because they're getting nickel and diamond, because I think that's so it's becoming increasingly clear uh, by say the unwillingness of Amazon or of whatever to Uber. increase. Yeah. Uber to increase the, the wage yeah. increasingly clear when you're not getting, when you're still getting paid the same minimum wage that people were getting paid 20 years ago or whatever, that you are not valued. Right. You're, you are a commodity. And, uh, and so I, I think that consciousness of the alienation has grown. So what did you think more broadly of the two pieces? I mean, this is the first time you've read them, right? Yeah, it was like a Marx uh, virgin pretty much at this point. I really liked them. I mean, I think I mentioned before that, that I found A Strange Labor a little harder to read. And I think I was m more excited about the manifesto because I sort of was, unex it was unexpectedly good. Uh, so I found, just speaking broadly, but when reading the manifesto, First thing, and I, I texted you this, is that I, I was surprised at how poetic the language was. Um, and it, it was a really sort of a, a powerful uh, just piece of literature that I, I didn't expect. I didn't expect it to be literature. As you were saying, the sort of prescient description of capitalism and how it takes over, as I read it, you know, look, I've, <laughs> I've never liked to think of myself as a communist but uh, as i was reading it i was like fuck if this isn't an even better description of 
capitalism today than it was of capitalism at the time 200 yeah uh, yeah, 200 years ago it is uh the way that he describes the tendrils of industry creating finding markets like the, the need to grow finding international markets in order to increase profit creating wants in as many individuals as possible in order to make more money, yeah. like being the sole goal of industry. Yeah, there's a quote and, here. The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. It's true that that's just so much more true today than than at the time. It's so, it's so much more true. And, and the, uh, the leaders of industry you know, part of the thing I want to talk to you about is where, where do people like us who are not only comfortable in our living, we actually work in, in jobs that give us meaning. Um, where do we, where do we fall in this, in this divide? But increasingly, wherever it is we fall, what's clear is that the, the means of production or the, the, the capitalist machine is in the hands of fewer and fewer people who are incredibly self-interested and and hell-bent on growing growing the market and i couldn't help but think i love apple for instance but the way that apple salivated at the thought of china opening up to commerce and the ability to um, now find a literal billion people who might buy their products for the sake of the growth of the company and the way that the ethics of a company sort of like apple or like google when they go to china get get subjugated so they they end up doing things or justifying the things that they do to appease a largely unjust chinese government in order to grow the machine right that sacrificing of even the individual's morals even the probably this any any given employee of apple would not have this but it doesn't matter because the desire of the mark is the most important the driving desire and so it's you know at one point mark says look i'm not it's not that i'm blaming the capitalists and in some sense it's true like the it it just has it takes over it's an idea that has spread and it is a practice that has spread largely because it's so good it's almost like a, there was a natural selection for capitalism in humans that sort of ran rampant well that's like, how it works right it's not like just these evil fat cats um who are just just get hard at the idea of exploiting workers in the worst possible way there might be some of those people but um the point is like if you have a small town hardware store and you're paying your workers really well and but your prices are a little too high because of that you can't survive. Like you're probably just going to end up getting swallowed up by the mal- the Walmart that comes in. But even yeah. it, but if you don't, if somehow you can keep it open, then you have to cut costs in 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 ways. And ultimately, the that has to end up on the worker because to the extent that you know Walmart can a get cheaper uh, products uh, wholesale, but then also pay their workers less, give them less benefits. Um, they will do it. And if you can't compete with that, you will just get shut down. Well, it's amazing because, and the way it works is that like you would think that, that uh, those practices of Walmart would be so distasteful that people would rebel against it. 
but the 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 way that it spreads is I can get a TV at Walmart for a hundred dollars cheaper. I'm going to get it there. Yeah. And it's, it's just, so there's a piece that I want to read. This is in the manifesto into their place, stepped free competition accompanied, accompanied by a social and political constitution adapted in it and the economic and political sway of the bourgeois class. A similar movement is going on before our own eyes. Modern bourgeois society with its relations of production of exchange and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange, which was nothing in the time of Marx compared to the way it is now, right? Is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. You know, like we created something we can't control, a golem, like we've a beast that has now taken over and is eating us as individuals alive and eating more. There's a part in, in here where Marx says it's eating up members of the bourgeois class right. who thought they were part of the bourgeoisie exactly. and now they find themselves as proletariat. Right. And you see that, that's another thing that I was like, wow, this is so much of what's been happening lately is, you know, you think, and, and there is some sort of uh, pride in thinking of yourself as like, you know, I've, Small I, business you know, I'm owner. skilled. I'm a, yeah, I'm skilled. I have made my, my life. Like I'm doing what I like. And now because of Walmart, I'm actually relegated yeah. to just just like a factory worker right. who's making coffee. Right. The non-alienated worker is uh it just can't compete in right. a capitalist system. This is like and and so they end up getting swallowed up by uh in and becoming proletariats themselves, having to work in a more dehumanizing situation that doesn't allow them to have that kind of pride in their work or see their work as a kind of expression of self. And this just yeah, we don't know how to stop it. Now, there's, there's sort of a separate thing. Like sometimes you get to this, I think w when overproduction happens because we're constantly producing more stuff, but we're also increasingly immiserating people to the point where they can't like afford to buy the stuff anymore. Right. Then that leads to recessions or depressions. And so he, so Marx thought that, you know, there's going to be these periods of boom and bust. And, it, and it's in the period of busts that proletariats can uh, will maybe make some connections that might ultimately lead to the overthrow of the bourgeoisie. Like, should we take a step back and just talk about like his idea of of history and how it works? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. because that's yeah, because it's I, very I really cool. Like this is a very cool. But by, by the way, that the <laughs> I don't think I remembered that the opening words, what the opening words are, but certainly have heard them. And, and like versions of them in parody many times. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Yes. <laughs> it's so daunting. <laughs> and, he, and he meant it more, he, he means it in that threatening way, but also, of course, he thinks that that's like a good thing, ultimately. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, also a very famous uh, opening line to the first section of the manifesto, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Uh, footnote all i mean all written <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so what does he mean by that well okay as i understand it marx has this view that the engine of historical change like the thing that transforms human civilization is our productive capacities right we're productive creatures we create things and 
Um, and this takes place, it has to take place within some sort of economic structure that will always feature different classes, including like uh, an oppressor class and an oppressed class or an exploited class. So in ancient Rome, ancient Rome and the slaves and the plebeian, plebeians and the patricians uh, in ancient Rome. So you have these different classes. Under feudalism, you have serfs and lords and then the serfs being the lowest, lords being the highest, you know, besides the king. And then in between, you had guild masters and apprentices and journeymen. I don't know what the journeymen were. Uh, <laughs> it could be that journeymen like are apprentices. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and then in capitalism, you have the bourgeoisie, the people who own capital and property, and then the proletariat, the people who work for wages and create profits for the, for the capitalists. And you always have class antagonisms within these structures because there's always an exploited uh, class and people who want to keep on exploiting. But the thing that leads to revolution according to Marx, the thing that leads these things to transform into a new economic structure is when the existing arrangement starts to hamper productive capacities. So you have this pretty stable feudal system, um, but then people started traveling uh, across the world. They discover, you know, uh, the new world. Now, all of a sudden, the feudal system starts to restrain human productive potential. So here's how he describes it. In one word, the feudal relations of property become no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. They become so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. And into their place stepped free competition accompanied by a social and political constitution adapt to, adapted to it and by the economic and political sway of the bourgeois class. And that leads to capitalism. So once that happens, now these existing antagonisms, it will give the upper hand to the um, exploited class and they will burst, uh, burst them asunder. Um, and... and and you might think that that's <laughs> like a good thing, um, but uh, um, I think Marx almost has a kind of nostalgic view of feudalism, uh, <laughs> right? In in right. because at least there are these examples of unalienated labor within it. Uh, he has so this is how he describes this. He says the bourgeoisie has put an end to all feudal patriarchal idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors, and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. He's just a good writer. Like that's, yeah. that's good. That's good shit right there. But, but <laughs> so good. the, like when I say he's being nostalgic, it's like, because under feudalism, at least there were these kinds of bonds that were created. Like there was a kind of noblesse oblige where the feudal lords felt responsible for their serfs and their guilds. And there was at least some kind of social sense of obligation um, on both sides um, that was less alienating than just this uh, icy self-interest, egotistical calculation being just the underlying ethic of the capitalist system. Now, it's not like Marx wants to return to feudalism. He doesn't even think that's possible, but he thinks that, you know, I think what he wants to do is rid us of this idea that this was something noble. 
you know, the, this kind of this revolution um, that we were defending the rights of of, of human beings and introducing right. a new liberal order that was uh, respected the freedom and autonomy of everybody. He thought that was just bullshit. That was just the <laughs> the kind of guiding ideology that uh, allows for a, a free market system to be maintained. Yeah, he describes the bourgeoisie as revolutionary that they played this this role in in history as initially historically revolutionary because they you know the world outgrew the system mm-hmm. um as you describe again it's one of those cases where you know trade increases exploration continues people are coming back with you know spices and and silks from another country and they want some right so currency becomes super important and that allows you you know fungible currency to to get the stuff that you want uh demand increases you know you start making your shit you need you uh hire more people to do it and you could just see how this would start from like very very basic foundations that aren't again aren't evil or anything like that uh that that then take over uh in part because and this is one of the things I want to talk to uh, talk to you about, in part because there is something that is very satisfying about this. There is a need that is getting fulfilled by this new market economy. Yeah, we want sh- shiny new shit. You know, you and also and, you want if you're like you know a guild master and you you're making shoes or clocks or whatever, and all of a sudden there's this demand for your product and you can really raise yourself up, uh, make more and more money, but you still are like, have to kick back like most of your money to the Lord. Like that's going to start to seem like this is bullshit uh, to you. And when they say no, but don't you know, like the divine right of Kings and Robert Filmer or whatever, um, defending this as some sort of sanction of the natural order. Uh, that's horseshit. You're just, that's your ideology because like it makes you still able to exploit us. Now you get enough momentum, uh, because you have a lot, because the trade also allows you to connect with these other, uh, you know, the bourgeoisie to connect with each other. And now you have, and now it's off with their heads, you know, it's a guillotine. So the merchant class all Mm -hmm. of a sudden becomes the most powerful class. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, when I was a kid learning about uh, other stratified societies where merchants were never at the top, but it it sort of confused me because as a kid growing up in America, like being a powerful business person, like that was like, if you were a rich millionaire who had your own like companies, that was obviously the top like position to be in in society. So I was like, how, how are these old systems like not have the merchant class right. at the top? But but yeah, the merchant class takes over as as the economy changes, and now there are armies for hire. Yeah, you know exactly. Right? You know, it's what's a great. I think this is why like mob movies are often just metaphors for this because mobs <laughs> and mob families have the, a kind of feudal structure where you know, and the merchants yeah. are like the captains who have to kick back to to the dons or the, you know the people working under the, the cap lords uh, yeah. and. And there's always this pressure to just break free of the system. And that's how a lot of these families become undone. And a lot of the arcs, the narrative arcs, 
uh, is that this unrest, you know, ends up leading to its own destruction, um, and people start just thinking, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rat out right because I don't, because it's like." You know, what are they right. doing for me? All they're doing is taking a huge percentage of the, like my hard work. That's how it, yeah. that's how I think it, it, it felt to the merchants under feudalism. Right. And there is the, the, the social structures that were sacred where, you know, the dawn is the dawn or the chief mm-hmm. is the chief and the Omerta and code. And the, yeah. And that's going to be, that's becomes nothing in an ex- pure exchange economy. And there's a quote here that I just loved. Um, He says, constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All fixed, fast frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. And man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. That stripping away of, of the sacred that was brought on by the power of an exchange economy is so spot on, I think. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And you can check out betterhelp.com VBW. You know, David... Life is full of stress and stressors. It doesn't matter who you are, what you have. Your life is probably stressful. Can I tell you about a recent stressor in my life? Sure. You know, with this whole COVID thing, um, we're back at school. And some schools are better than others. I can't complain too much. My school has been good with the COVID response. But as things are getting a little more serious and people are reporting more and more cases... I'm actually teaching a class with like 900 students and I look out into the sea of faces of kids just sitting right next to each other and I, it's stressing me out, man. It's just stressing me out. You just see them as little viruses. <laughs> They're just little like vectors. Views, yeah. like, like germs everywhere. Yeah. And, if, and maybe that will cause you to start feeling strain in your relationships. Hopefully not. Um, although I feel our relationship might be yeah, a little strained. And you could probably use the chance to unload, get it out, talk to somebody who is unbiased about your life, someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. Um, And when there are things you can't tell anyone or feel like you can't unload to family and friends because they're too close to it, that's what therapy can be. BetterHelp is customized online therapy therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. That's that's nice, actually. <laughs> like another Zoom call, it's like it's not worth it, like even if it would like improve my well-being. Uh, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So unload all those stressors, get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. And this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And so Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW for 10% off your first month. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, and and it's interesting because on the one hand, he seems to think that capitalism 
just does away with all that kind of the bullshit, the prejudices, the the religious underpinnings of a lot of these economic systems and leaves us with nothing. But then he also thinks that, no, no, we have a guiding ideology. It's just its language is the, just the language of liberalism, uh, broadly speaking, that shows us to be in in some sense just these atomistic creatures that need to be protected from each other and uh that who's that with property that needs to be protected from uh from theft from from <laughs> right. other people taking the property and so like i think marx you know we might think of john locke or like enlightenment thinkers like kant and hume that they've kind of come to the rescue and saved saved civilization from the more primitive religious kinds of ideologies that were going hand in hand with the feudal economic structures, but actually they are just no different. It's harder for us to see because when you're within the system, it's very hard for you to see it. I'll read a quote here. He says, don't wrangle with us so long as you apply to our intended abolition of bourgeois property, the standard of your bourgeois notions of freedom, culture, law, etc. Your very ideas are but the outgrowth of the conditions of your bourgeois production and bourgeois property, just as your jurisprudence is but the will of your class, the ruling class made into a law for all, a will whose essential character and direction are determined by the economic conditions of existence of your class. And then just, I love this line, the selfish misconception that induces you to transform into eternal laws of nature and of reason, the social forms springing from your present mode of production and form of property, historical relations that rise and disappear in the progress of production. This misconception you share with every ruling class that preceded you. You saw it clearly in the case of ancient property and feudal property, but you can't see it or you're forbidden to admit that you see it in the case of your own bourgeois form of property. I mean, that's really interesting. Whether you agree with it or not, this idea that it's hard to see it when, you're, when you are within that economic structure, but if you look at these more uh, ancient forms of economic structures and you look at those ideologies, like it's 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 pretty obvious that they're there to justify and 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 keep the ruling class in power. Is it the same yeah. with us? Yeah, I mean, look, like push comes to shove, I, I disagree. You know, I I firmly believe that these liberal notions of the of justice and um, enlightenment ideals about justice and and respecting the individual. I think that. Whether it came from the rise of capitalism or not, I think it needs to be judged independently. And I think that it is much better than the systems that it took over in that any individual has a shot of being treated well. Um, but I have to admit, it is tied to a very basic notion in capitalism, which is anybody can rise up right the idea of mobility by engaging in and participating in the markets is really it seems really tied to those notions of individuality and especially like rights to property right um yeah. property rights and this is something yeah, it was that, like he like, was shouting at libertarians like just from from you know 100 years ago he's like shouting at libertarians yeah and, and also <laughs> you know uh and it, it's not like this didn't exist i mean john yeah. john locke's whole theory is um 
is often used as a defense of private property. But I mean, so one of the things that came to mind as I was reading this was the protests last year. And it was just kind of amazing that you had, uh, you know, what is clearly real injustice in the way um, the police are and have been throughout our history treating black people and just people in general. And then you saw this, this, you know, what I think both of us saw as a really almost encouraging, inspiring form of protest against police violence. And then all of a sudden, just this crackdown from the media, from, I mean, we, 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 we certainly in our own way bore the brunt of, of this, just, just this outrage at um, the fact that, you know, there were these, uh, there were these protests, which occasionally led to riots, which occasionally led to the destruction of private property. And we're kind of thinking, okay, yeah, that'll happen. You know, anytime there's going to be protests, there's the possibility of violent protests, but that's kind of not the issue. That's not the main issue here. You know, that a target got broken into or got some, uh, uh, windows broken or whatever. And yet these, it, it, it just shows how these things are in place. I think you see it with yeah. Biden pulling out of Afghanistan. Big money and, and corporate property interests are at work at every level, including the ideological level. Now, that just seems right to me. And you see it when there is pressure on it. Like you see how these systems and institutions all jump to, into place. Yeah. Now, I think what you said about you should still evaluate these theories independently like, yeah. I, I think Marx thinks that's not possible. Yeah, yeah. It's clear that he does. And I think for the first time, I really understood what materialism, like what his materialism means. These things rise out of these relationships and they are a product of them. And, uh, you know, I, I get it. It's, it's like, a, I mean, I think everything you said actually is not inconsistent with me still wanting to be able to evaluate these differently and still thinking we made some progress in in terms of individuals justice like notions of justice and individuality right but but it's absolutely true that that you clearly can see that money is driving everything is to threaten any of any of the institutions that are uh like you said big money if you threaten that and you'll see you'll see what happens like, and again it's not like there's some master plan or these like mr burns is that you know right. like at his mansion and they're all figuring this out yeah and and the fact that there are fat cats um clearly right the fact that there are bezos's and and mark zuckerberg's and whatever um i think can can lead to a sense that you're describing where we just need to find the people behind the curtain and everything will be okay. Right. Uh, when in reality, those people are, are, you know, one part of the large system that's at fault. Right. Um, in their own way, so, they're part of the machine too. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting that, that power and wealth has accumulated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Um, and so, so, someone like Bezos can buy a newspaper yeah. and, and sort of like transparently be <laughs> behind some of the machinations. But that doesn't mean right, that this is not this, like the military industrial complex isn't a thing. Yeah, it's exactly, it's yeah. a self-sustaining uh, uh, process 
that leads to the kinds of like media reaction when we pull out of somewhere that they were going to make a lot of money if we just stayed there forever like they wanted us to. I'm sure there are evil fat cats who are trying to who just get a kick out yeah. of a lot of people suffering so that they get wealthier, wealthier and more powerful. But that's not like the Mark. Mark's idea is it's that these systems arise. They have to arise. Yeah. Right. And even then you'd say like, like these fat cats, they might have power, but they might not have evil intent because they, they don't need to right. like to, for this to happen. All they need to do is respond quote unquote rationally to the market and make the moves that will right. increase uh, profit, revenue, and drive up the stock price. And in doing that, that's sort of becomes enough to just keep feeding. Yeah. Like decisions get made because stockholders will be happy. That's where the ideology plays a complementary role. I taught business ethics for like oh, really? two years. At, yeah, that was one of the things I had to do at University of Minnesota Morris. Oh, cool. Off just... It's, not a fun thing to teach because the <laughs> philosophical literature on it is uh, is kind of brutal. But it's it's taught so wrong. I like I've I've been uh, so I've guest lectured it and I have friends who teach it and it's like why are you t- why are you telling them about Kant? I don't think business ethics <laughs> like needs to know. <laughs> like they don't need to. No, right. I feel like all it's giving it is all it's giving them is a way to justify unethical decisions. Exactly right. And in fact, <laughs> there is this kind of debate between like stockholder theory and stakeholder theory where you know the stockholder theory side is that the right thing to do is whatever is best for your stockholders and so they have and 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 there is this kind of capitalistic ethic that i think is built on this idea of like rationality like you said where again that's all they need to justify um all sorts of things that you might think are brutal and horrific and exploitative and leads to a lot of suffering and misery, but from their perspective is just part of, uh, yeah. you know, this, well, this is how the world right. works. Be- because if, if you if you don't maximize in that form, right. somebody else will, and then they'll take over. It's interesting. I want to talk to you a bit about, like, there's a lot that he talks about um, in a few places about in in the alienation thing as well about uh children being exploited yeah in the alienation part he talks about children being exploited by their parents and it and it made me think yeah i guess run rampant capitalism was super like super exploitative of children and and then i thought well it still is in like these other countries like we we've risen above with child labor laws that are enforced by communists <laughs> yeah I, it's still there, and it's not that that's not, I don't think, incompatible with Marx's idea. I think he would probably think that sometimes, you know, the people who are fighting against just purely unfettered free market, they will have little victories. Um, and because he talks about unions and he talks about, you know, whenever yeah. a s- proletariats can get a little political power, sometimes they can use it, but the but the arc will be, for the rich to get richer and the exploited class to get poorer and more alienated. And maybe I think you could probably argue against Marx that at least in, in you know, maybe we've exported our the worst kinds of poverty to other countries. It's not that there's no poverty. There's a lot of poverty, but maybe the standards of living, even for the poorest people, have gone uh, have gone up rather than down since like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, 
But ultimately, the, uh, these class antagonisms are going to get stronger and stronger because the, of this idea of alienation. Like, work yeah. ha- has not gotten less alienating, I think it would no, be fair it, to I, say, over this period of time. But I was going to ask you, where, are we, where do we stand? This is what I want to talk about. Like, we're, we're obviously in a class that's different. But I remember when I was in graduate school, well, that there yeah. was a large union push. Yeah. And in that union push for, for graduate students, there was a desire to align that the graduate student union aligned itself with like the local, I think local 34 or something, which was like janitors. Right. And I remember thinking that seemed like disrespectful. We're not that. Yeah. We're not. I don't feel that kind of alienation. I don't, certainly don't feel oppressed. Well, so on the one hand, it's not like we have property and like, and we're making people work for us. I guess you have grad students, but like, you know, I, I, I like, I think the reason we have such unalienating jobs is that we're granted so much autonomy, but with that autonomy isn't, uh, like having a lot of people work for us. Like, I, like, I mean, I suppose, I suppose you could, you could describe the people who keep the university going as, as in some ways working for you, yeah, like the I, staff. Or you, you could. And then, but I think the other thing that we've seen that's very consistent with like a Marx kind of prediction is that the rise of just adjuncts, the percentages of adjuncts yeah. who are just getting paid shit and without yeah. benefits um, to do a truly ton of becoming, work. Becoming yeah. a commodity, truly. Truly like, becoming a commodity, which allows us to have better teaching loads and yeah. and have this. So in that way, maybe we are kind of oppressors. And, you know, and in that sense, like this kind of solidarity that you might expect us to have with our fellow adjuncts. And of course, like I support them, I want them to get, but I, I'm not like put my own job at risk to improve yeah. the conditions of adjuncts. And so, like, I think, you know, that's a tricky thing about where we are. We do benefit uh, and, uh, from a system, a university system that is increasingly exploiting its faculty and probably its staff. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. Um, just sometimes I feel as if our faculty, so this happens sometimes when when the the university makes a decision that the faculty disagree with. It's happening right in, right now with uh, decisions that the university is making about not allowing anybody to go online with their courses, which has the faculty pretty upset. Um, it, during those times, people remember. I think they remember, but I think they need to remember more that this is a, a university run by a corporation. Yeah, it it is a board. You know, it has a bottom line. They meet, like I've been on committees that meet with the people who run the university. And I'm luckily friends with, say, my former advisor, who is the president of Yale, who- (laughs) You are a real ruling class. Well, like I I like to, (laughs) I don't, uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Just yes, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He he told me, he, he has two jobs. One job, is to raise funds, right? To travel around and raise money as the president. And the other job is to keep the Yale Corporation happy, right? right? It's just not for state schools, but for all private universities, they are just a business. And we are, right? As become becomes clear whenever we disagree with the university, we are not in any control. We are 
just right because you're dependent yeah. on students being wanting to pay tuition and and you know, alumni wanting to to give to the school getting uh, and this is true for state schools too cuz i assume cornell is not a for-profit university right no so right. the only difference is that uh, yeah. you know we get some money but not much i think it's like 30% of the budget comes from the state if that and so actually half a cornell is state too so there is some of that yeah. but you know it's it just it, if you pay someone enough they will stop thinking about these yeah. these structures, right? And I am solidly in that class of people who get paid enough money to not complain. And also, you're just not exploited, like like. And I, I don't feel yeah. exp- I don't feel exploited. I don't feel. Exp- I mean, you could yeah. you might argue in some in some general sense that there is exploitation going on, but I, it's not. I'm certainly not. I don't feel like a factory worker. But. Yes, this is one of the reasons why. I instinctively just don't love all the academics on social yeah, media me, me acting neither. like our job is like we're these huge victims. And uh, I know. Yeah. Like the other thing that I had just in my mind as I was reading all this to, to discuss with you is like capitalism. Like I really like it. <laughs> I love the stuff. I love the what what it's done in terms of creating new things for human beings. I love that we have amazing technology and we have uh, cures for diseases that we might not have had because of these markets. And like, it's hard for me to go full communist, much to the chagrin of my significant other. Um, well, yeah. Okay, so I think Marx thinks like whatever you want or however you might feel, maybe you just hit the lottery in a capitalist system and you've been able to, you know, you're the beneficiary of a lot of people. For sure. Uh, <laughs> who have it much worse than you. Um, and so, you know, and that's separate from you liking like the new whatever. iPhone, iPhone I, I, Apple. coming out in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, the, or like the Apple Watch or all, all your nerd yeah. shit technologies that, <laughs> <laughs> that make you get rock hard. But I, I want to just, because you said something interesting that um, we then changed the, the subject, but about how work has become more and more alienating yes. increasingly, even if, you know, uh, standards of living have by some metric uh, risen in the last hundred years. And, and one of the, and, and I think you, like, you, you said servers, like, and people who maybe yeah. work at, at restaurants that are more increasingly treating them poorly, paying them like shit. Then you see that with the unemployment, right? As soon as people got uh, this, these unemployment benefits, they didn't want to go back to work. Yeah. And that led to this outcry, like, oh, look, now we can't, uh, we, you know, we have all these openings that we can't fill because they're um, they're it, taking the unemployment it's like but you could fill them if you just paid them more and and gave them more money you absolutely could. amazing it's absolutely amazing how that happened yeah and it's it's just like this this to just to act shocked that people don't want to work for you right. <laughs> like after the government gave them like literally twelve hundred dollars yeah. you know <laughs> And like, you know, maybe $600 a month or something like yeah. that, if that based on what they were getting before. But like, yeah, the and then to be like, there's nothing we can do. We have to stop these benefits. Well, no, there is some, there's, there's definitely yeah. something that they could do. Maybe is to just treat them better, have better working conditions. But then the question is, can you then compete with the other restaurants who aren't doing that? 
Yeah. And right. so this is how this thing maybe starts to unravel. But I think one thing, so the reason I wanted to put off your question about whether we want uh, yeah. a more communist or socialist system is because I want to talk first just about the idea that Marx kind of thought that this was just going to naturally happen, that yeah. capitalism has these contradictions within it that will ultimately lead to a proletariat revolution. And, you know, at least yeah. in um, Western Europe and the United States, this hasn't happened. It's happened uh, very few places with not much success, uh, right. lasting success which, in in any in any of them, at least as far as I'm aware. But which is super interesting, you know, the question of why we can maybe probably won't have time to get to, but yeah, yeah, I think I want to do more marks because this is just our first sort of scatterbrained foray into it, hopefully, or at least <laughs> one other episode. But anyway, like I think capitalism has more tricks up its sleeve maybe than, than Marx thought, but you see some of these pressures building, right? You see like, yeah. it's a different world since 2008 um, yeah. than it was before then. And there's so much more unrest, so much just more explicit alienation and resentment and anger that's been building. And, you know, as you might expect, we tend to play this up as, you know, race, you know, increased racism and, and increased prejudice. And we never talk about it as a kind of class, class conflicts because yeah. that's not good for the system. But, you know, you, you might think that we are getting towards a breaking point with capitalism as awesome as it, as it is in terms of producing things that you love and I love and all the great television shows and movies and all yeah. these things that that have been made possible by, via capitalism the strains on the system that come from an increasingly alienated uh workforce that just doesn't give a shit that feels like they have nothing to lose at this point and they don't feel uh in any way bound to the kind of political ideology that cements like the ruling class in, in place that we might be leading towards some kind of like self-destruction, even if it doesn't necessarily look like it's going to then unfold into the kind of communist system that, that Marx predicted it would and had to. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the growing dissatisfaction. Like you can, it's palpable, the you know, and I think that, that, um, current circumstances make it even more clear. Like you said, the people who didn't have to work, they got a little taste of not yeah. being exploited and, and they don't want to go back. There's a Reddit, there's a subreddit called anti-work r slash anti-work yeah. that, that pops up on my feed every once in a while. It's just such a clear example of the kind of alienation, uh, that, that Marx described. And, you know, I'm curious. I, I mean, so capitalism, it's not just the cool, shiny stuff, but, uh, you know, when I was talking about medicines and technologies that have actually improved people's lives, I think was brought about by capitalism. But when when it becomes so clear that you would rather people die so that you can keep this machinery going, it's, it's so evident as it is now, it seems like something is going to happen. Something has to happen. And whether that thing is just an increased call for socialist policies, you know, hopefully, I hope so. 
But look at what happened when Bernie, you know, tried to run when Bernie two tried. times. Very popular. I, and I still, the whole yeah, system I, just geared against like that happening, making I that not happen. I feel like some there was some victory there that's latent. I feel like maybe we're circling up into making, you know, maybe Bernie was a good foil for somebody who came along who was, well, I'm not, I'm not going full communism, but I'm going to increase maybe some social welfare programs and then slowly, but surely we can get to somebody. But that was Bernie. He wasn't openly advocating for communism. He was just advocating for universal healthcare. And yeah. uh, So no, just just to say, to say it like the more, the, to to have a contrast with someone who seemed more extreme like Bernie. I mean, Bernie got labeled a communist hardcore, right? And I think that's why he lost. Um, but it's not an accident here. that he got labeled that way, right? Like, no, absolutely not. Yeah, not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, it's and it's crazy that somebody who is advocating for basic like things that we might basic human rights that you say is a Lockean liberal ideal, but like some, <laughs> something like basic human rights, like that he gets dismissed so easily. Um, and I think, but I think the other thing you said that I think is, is spot on is that seeing, seeing what's going on as a class struggle, is, that's something that's been increasingly on my mind that it's not to say that race, racism doesn't exist or injustice based on, on race don't exist. It's just increasingly clear to me that so much of what ends up as racism, say like policing increased policing in low-income neighborhoods that it's an economic thing that it's like it's it's unfortunately paired with race so you know it's so coextensive in some cases with race that it's hard to see how much of it is class and again racism i think still is around but i we we're not i don't think we're seeing clearly about the class like, yeah, you know, because, but I think it's, again, it's no accident that we're not seeing it clearly that it, because it's not portrayed yeah. in that way. Um, and the people who try to portray it in that way are demonized, often demonized yeah. as, as racists themselves, because the thing that they can't have is, uh, a solidarity among the working classes. And so they create these kinds of divisions within them. And this is something that's been, you know, that's been going on forever. And you saw it, I think, in the more radical, like, areas of civil rights that it's when, like, Malcolm X started going to all these other kind and trying to unify, you know, then he's taken out. And this is something, again, I don't think it's conscious. It may be conscious by some people, you know, at some level, like J. Edgar Hoover or something like, you know. But, like... Uh, but but this is just how it plays out. And it's really like, if you're alert to it, it's very frustrating. It's really frustrating to see to see it happen because it does just get in the way. Uh, it's It's such an obstacle to the kinds of reform that would end up actually like easing some of the pressure on capitalism, yeah. you know, like that. Uh, totally. that's, that's the contradiction I think that Marx is kind of talking about is, you know, s- all the conditions come together, FDR is able to do the new deal and that actually stabilizes things for a little while, not for that long, but for a little while. Yeah. But, um, then you don't have that 
again, you know, people are saying Biden is trying to do. But the thing is, if they could somehow, it would actually be better. It would it would make people a little less alienated, feeling like they were valued more, feeling uh, a little less likely to engage in any kind of civil unrest. It's just that that's not the way capitalism works. It can't yeah. do it. It doesn't have the structures in place to kind of think with that kind of foresight, you know? And that's, and yeah, and that's the role that I think government should should play. Um, you know, it's it, supposed to exist. You know, For I laugh that. saying it. Yeah. yeah, I laugh at saying it. It's supposed to exist sort of, yeah, independently of the market and be able to regulate it. But, <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah. And then you saw when you try to have campaign finance reform, that just, yeah. that goes out the window. And now you have um, corporations funding like the political careers of, of any major person with any kind of power. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Boots Riley is the person I know all of my communism from. Uh, yeah, <laughs> listening to him, it's like from college. Sorry to bother you, right? Yeah. Think about uh, like alienated labor, and he yeah. the way he chooses to portray alienated labor is literally a black guy having to act, you know, a, yeah. use a white voice at at his job. Yeah. And of course, like this idea that the capitalist machine, if they can turn people into horses and make them work harder. Yeah, he's a really strong champion of socialist and communist ideals. Yeah, and he gets shit on a whole lot by everybody, in part because he's extreme, right? Like he is calling for revolution, which is a part, but we do need to talk more about Marx. Yeah. Uh, because we haven't even gotten to the part about <laughs> that this is a call to revolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like a lot of what Boots Riley says, I disagree with, but people don't like it when uh, black people like you said, when they go, when they start peeling back, you know, Dave Chappelle in his own way sort of yeah. talks about this too. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Like curtain, it's just money. And he's like, and he even says like, I'm not black. I'm Dave Chappelle. Like I'm rich. So like I got, I get to see some of this. Like it's not at some level. It's really not about race. It's about how much money you have. Yeah. Yeah. But it's in the people with a power's interests to think about it as anything but class. It's not like they yeah. just want for like to just create racial tensions just for the fun of it. It's just that's a way of getting people not to see these kinds of problems as class problems. Yeah. <sighs> should um, we put should we put a pin in it and talk about Marx some other time? Because I yeah, think there's your problem. Some... I, I could sense in you a frustration that there's so much you want to talk about that you couldn't talk about. Well, just this last part about how he thinks it's going to come unraveled. And yeah. I guess the, you know, this is maybe could be, uh, there's a lot we, of, uh, else we could talk about, but just how the obstacles to organizing um, among the proletariats I th- seem greater, I think, than he anticipated. And I think Marx thought that, you know, the conditions would get bad enough and the the bourgeoisie would have to enlist the proletariat in certain political efforts and, and giving them, like, the tools to then uh, lead to the uprising. It just doesn't feel like... We seem more increasingly alienated, but we don't... It doesn't seem like people are more organized. People seem yeah, less well, organized and there's uh, more just, you know, interclass, intra-class I, antagonisms. I genuinely think that what Marx couldn't have anticipated is the rise of consumerism. And, you know, he talked about religion being the opiate of the masses. Like I see consumerism really as, as being the opiate 
nowadays where the people who are alienated from their labor and work these shitty jobs and live for the weekend save up to buy a jet ski you yeah. know and that and they get excited about it and the thought that there are things that you can purchase to make you happy because you're not happy in life yeah is such a powerful it's such a powerful feature of capitalism that and and one that is like a drug you know i i, I love watching youtube videos of like tech reviews every once in a while they pause and say like i feel like i don't want to contribute to this mass consumerism where you throw away the iphone you had last year because you want the new one and they say it sincerely yeah but they just go i mean they keep on reviewing new <laughs> right. gadgets right like it's 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 yeah. I, I think so it's such a powerful like even if you can't purchase things the thought that you might be able to in the future um exactly. you keep working yeah it's gonna keep people working yeah I, I yeah i mean it's not that he doesn't talk about consumerism no. i think and i think and although i haven't read capital uh das capital but i think like he does talk about this kind of uh consumerist uh, even in the manifesto need. he's right he's, yeah he talks about the the creation of new wants yes which is yeah yeah new exactly which is something i think he might not he underestimated the extent of it that's right because you can get an hd tv from china now you know for like 200 bucks or something yeah and built uh, how is that not right yeah. hey, built off exploited workers but you're, you know, you have a, a shitty, you know, factory job. You can come home to that and some beer. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, and, and, and I think the thing that he might not have anticipated is just all the different ways that these consumer products distract us. Yeah. And like, you know, right. it's you don't want to go to like the union organizing meeting when you <laughs> could just go home and binge watch whatever. Yeah, that's totally... <laughs> I mean, Shane, I live, I live for the weekend sometimes to binge watch shows, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that has kind of a stultifying effect where I think Mark's thought like maybe you might use your free time to see like how, you know, you, you could or you ought to be living and that that would build tensions or maybe that the, the hours would get so long that you wouldn't have any time for any kind of distractions that would keep your mind off um, uh, revolution. But like, it does seem like there's this sweet spot where you yeah. can, because things have gotten so cheap and the meat, the ways of distracting yourself are so myriad that, you know, that leads to a kind of stabilizing, or at least it gets in the way of any kind of real organizing that would need to happen for any kind of serious revolution. Right, right. No, totally. I think that's totally right. And, yeah. and there is a way in which capitalism to continue itself throws bones out. <laughs> yes, <know>? exactly. <laughs> it does. Like, that's, like, it has more tricks on its, up its <laughs> sleeve than I, maybe Marx could have known. Um, and I think that that's a big one. Then, yeah, and also, like you said, the dream of being one day, you know, somebody yeah. who will be in control of your own fate and in control uh, of your own destiny. And look, yeah, well, I, like, I hope we talk more because we haven't even talked about this in relation to, you know, criminal justice and yeah. civil rights and culture and all of that. So there's a lot more to talk about. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm glad to have another, like, something to look forward to. Like, a, like, it's always good to have things that we can turn into multiple episodes. Yeah. It allows us to stop having to think so hard about it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm glad I finally understand critical race theory now that we read the manifesto. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess we're done for now.
because this is a beast. But uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Listeners of the world, unite.